Welcome to Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. We are back from a long holiday weekend here in the United States, but ready to jump back into it, bringing you a unique look at the sports business, sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and on occasion, even serious. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. So a couple things before we get going, because there's a lot going on, but I do hope everyone here in the States had a great long 4th of July for our listeners in other parts of the world. And we know there are many. We hope you enjoyed a weekend, maybe took in a little of the Nathan's famous 4th of July hot dog eating contest from Coney Island. It certainly is a peak into American exceptionalism. And Joey Chestnut, well, let's just call this what it is. (laughs) He's an absolute American hero. All good fun in Coney Island. Wait, what? Wait, American, American (laughs) exceptionalism in a tube steak. Yeah, absolutely. It's the whole event. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, it is one of our greatest products. And and unfortunately, not immune to protests. No. If you saw there was actually a protester there. Yeah, Joe, it it kind of plays into the whole folk hero of what Joey Jaws Chestnut is. I mean, he's on a bum leg. He's in a he's on a walking cast. He he obviously has won this thing fourteen times already. He's the you know the favorite by far. Uh, so he has to he has to deal with that pressure. And then he gets a protester. And while having two hot dogs in his mouth, he chokeholds the guy, takes him down, and continues on and beats the field by a lot. It wasn't I even think. close. He could have he could have he could have totally coasted to the win. The things from which legends are made. Right. If you are the protester and you are listening, um, I hate to break it to you, hot dogs don't have meat in them. So there's that. <laughs> All right. Uh, next week, uh, we are going to have the sponsorship manager for Nathan's Famous uh, on with us. Tried to sell them the sponsorship when I was working with New York Red Bulls. Wouldn't return my call. Uh, Ghosted well. me. Well, listen, when you have an event this good, when you have an event this good, do you really need any other sponsorship? I hate to say it. I think Very this true. is this Very is it. Uh, and they really, I mean, listen, this is a, 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 in my opinion, a very fun event. It it is a little wild and it is a little crazy. And George Shea, who I think is absolutely amazing, uh, doing the announcing is just completely over the top. But uh, I, I do think it's great. And the venue, you know, back there, right in, in Coney Island. Uh, after two years of not being able to do it in that location was just was just awesome. Yeah, it was nice um, to see so, it there. Yeah, so congrats to uh, uh, to Joey Chestnut and for getting that event back on. Unfortunately, right after that is when news broke of another mass shooting, this time in a town called Highland Park, Illinois, which is a town I'm familiar with. And it revealed another thing that America is pretty exceptional at, and that's mass shootings. Now, it's not our intent necessarily to constantly bring up, you know, thorny issues like this, but the juxtaposition of the two events on an American holiday as sacred as the 4th of July, well, it just made me feel like I had to say something. So uh, I will leave it at that. At Thank you. Point. Thank you for bringing that up. It was the words seem so trite. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I, I am in favor of the Second Amendment. Um, but I also believe that thoughts and prayers have not worked. So just for laughs, let's see if maybe we limit the access to those types of weapons that can cause so much carnage in such a short period of time. But 
anyway, we digress. Well, yeah, no, and I appreciate that as well. The second thing I wanted to mention before throwing it over to you is congratulations in order to you, uh, Tim, for formally joining the NFT platform suite as a principal for strategic partnerships. It's an exciting space, obviously, with an exciting new deal with the NHL and NHLPA and the NHL alumni and really happy and very excited for you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited as well. It's, uh, you know, it's a new area, but like I have done so many times in the past in my career, I try to apply things that I know and things that I'm familiar with and things that I'm passionate about with things that I'm really excited to learn about. Right. And, you know, the best description um, that one of my colleagues, in fact, my new boss, Betsy Proctor, shout out to Betsy, said was, uh, you know, NFTs are simply digital versions of things we already love to collect. And when you think of it that way, and then you think about the, you know, the consumer first approach that Sweet takes, I think I'm going to have a lot of fun. Let me put it that way. I don't want to turn it into a commercial for Sweet, but um, but thank you. Thank you. For well, no, con- congrats. And it is exciting to be learning something new. And this, this you know, blockchain and NFTs are, are, are not going away anytime soon. And we certainly want to cover this space um, in as fair a way on this show as possible and, and bring more knowledge to ourselves and, and, of course, to our listeners. So hopefully Absolutely. that'll come out. And I, I expect that we will be, uh, be talking about the, the category and the space a lot more. So okay that's that so tim what's uh what's on your mind i don't think we can have this episode without starting and perhaps even finishing with the most recent round of upheaval within college athletics right the bombshell dropped last week that usc and ucla were going to be leaving the pac-12 to join the big 10. it has created a ripple effect or maybe a tsunami effect depending on how you look at it the latest I mean, and, and, and the news is, is seemingly coming out by the hour. So so uh, what I read earlier today was that um, four other schools, or excuse me, six other schools are looking to leave the Pac-12, um, which would leave the, the conference with four full-time members. Um, I think it's safe to say that's untenable um, as, a, as a college athletic conference, especially as one of the big power five conferences. Um, so it remains to be seen what happens, right? The, the, the ability to attract teams is somewhat limited, not because Pac-12 doesn't have great leadership and, you know, great legacy and things like that, but there's just not many unaffiliated schools or schools that are affiliated with conferences that would be willing to jump at this point. Yeah. Yeah. The Pac-4 doesn't, it doesn't engender a lot of, uh, a lot of a lot of excitement among the television networks. Well, it sounds it sounds like a uh, it sounds like part of the Marvel franchise, right? Right. Um, yeah. No. This is this is absolutely Game of Thrones stuff going on. You know, the new Pac-12 commissioner has not been on the job all that long, and uh, I think he thought everything was going swimmingly. Um, it was partnership, big, partnerships with the Big Ten, partnerships with the ACC. Um, what? I don't think he knew is that this is this is this is more than an arms race, and it also shows you just how powerful the football aspect is. Because think about the regionality of college sports has been shot in a way. I mean, I remember, you know, when uh, Miami, you know, joined the ACC, and thinking like, you know, oh my gosh, the whole regional nature is is gone of the Atlantic Coast Conference, even though Miami is on the Atlantic Coast. 
Um, and, you know, this is not even close to what we're dealing with now. So the concept of, of regional sponsorship and all those things are just obviously a secondary, if not even tertiary, to the idea of what can happen with these television deals and, and what we're going to have. Um, and, it, and it does look like the, the Big 12 could be the one that kind of emerges as the, uh, as the third strong one, even though Oklahoma and Texas are leaving the Big 12 to join the SEC. That's supposed to not happen until 2025. I don't think it's going to take that long. I think they're going to move because all of this stuff is happening so fast. Um, but the Big Ten and the SEC obviously are going to be the dominant ones. They're going to have the giant television contracts. Um, what the Big Ten is now going to fetch with the L.A. market added to it is just going to be unbelievable. Uh, and, and the you know, Fox Sports really you know, sounds as though they were a driving force in making this happen. And um, Kevin Warren, the the Big Ten commissioner, seemed like he pulled this off, and and it's a feather in his cap, um, you know, for world dominance in college sports, I suppose. But who's next, and what's going to happen? I do, as an ACC guy, uh, I am I am very concerned about that, particularly for my tiny little Wake Forest, because we'll be the odd person out. Um, the one thing the ACC does have going for it is they had this grant a uh, grant of rights in place that they had done to once when Maryland. Uh, left to go to the Big Ten, they they really rallied the troops and signed this deal, uh, where that if anyone were to leave, their television rights would remain with the ACC. But with the money that's floating around now, I don't know how long that can hold. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Wake Forest is a preseason pick to be a top fifteen team, though. So don't think that I only follow I, Big Red. After I, I follow the and DVD I and I appreciate well. you saying that, and it would be shocking to a lot of people, mostly us as alums, because it's just amazing when we when we get good and get good for a couple seasons. But Dave Clawson has done an amazing job with that program um, for sure. But the problem is, is national following. I mean, look at these big 10 schools in the, and the, not that we don't have fans, you know, I'm, I'm sure in, in all States, but we're not North Carolina. We're not Clemson. Um, well, it's interesting. Even, you know, there's very few Alabamas and, Michigan's and Ohio State's out there, the tr Notre Dame's, right, who truly have national fan bases. But to go back to the Pac-12 for a second, it was interesting. I heard, and I am paraphrasing here, um, the UCLA athletic director, Martin Jarman, said he believed that this move from the Big Ten, from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten was going to have very positive impact on name image likeness. Um, so there's a lot to unpack with that one thing. The first thing I would say is, you know, he's giving more opportunities ostensibly to his athletes. I don't even want to call them student athletes anymore, which is how I always refer to them going back to my days working closely with the NCAA. But let's be honest, right? And this is not a knock on him in particular, but any athletic director in that type of position, you know, cares about his athletic program first, his university second, and the kids third. Uh, and again, not a knock on Martin Jarman in particular. I just think that's their remit, right? And to the extent that these kids are an important part of the ongoing success, then yes, they're important to them. But um, let us not, you know, let us not kid ourselves um, that every entity and every stakeholder in college athletics has these athletes and student athletes, if you will, best interest at heart. Well, I think your point there, you know, kind of suggests what ended up happening in the NIL debate in that they 
in many regards, they're employees of a program. I mean, athletic directors charge is to, is to keep the profile up, obviously assist the university, help draw additional revenue. Um, you know, and that's what universities in a, in a way seem to be while they're hopefully doing academic pursuits and so forth. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I, I do find it funny that a couple of weeks ago, you know, people are continuing to harp uh, and in some regards, rightfully on the issue of, of NIL and how it's screwing up competitive balance um, uh, how it's out of control and it's the wild west and all those things. And, and I think now, um, while it'll, it'll obviously continue to be an issue that needs to be addressed, the news in the space is very much focused on this, on this conference realignment and, and what is going to shake out at a time when the NCAA, as we've talked about on this show quite a bit, um, is, you know, looking for what its actual relevance is because these conferences and these, particularly these big power conferences, uh, or what's what's dominating. Uh, interestingly, one of the big names in the in the sports business for a number of years, Brett Yormark, um, someone that had been at NASCAR, someone that had been the longtime president of uh, the Brooklyn Nets, BSE Global, um, and then uh, at Rock Nation, uh, had recently accepted the the job to be the new commissioner of the Big Twelve. He hasn't even started yet. And he's walking in and Brett comes from a background that's very different. This is one of those hires that is this the direction of college sports. Kevin Warren came from the NFL. Phillips, the ACC guy, came from Northwestern. So that was a more traditional pick. Um, uh, Kleevkaw came from uh, an entertainment company, MGM, I think. Um, yeah, and, but he was also at NBC before right. that. So, but more, a more traditional pick. And, you know, listen, Brett, you know, there's been a lot of, words to describe Brad over over the years right one of one of which is visionary but I don't even think he saw this coming or maybe <laughs> right. or maybe he did right as part of his his due diligence in this but this this seemed to come out of nowhere right this this Two, bombshell from right. USC and UCLA a week ago I might have if not scratched my head said I wonder if that's a good pick because the 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 various stakeholders you have to deal with in the college athletic world is very different than what he was dealing with at, say, BSE Global or, or for that case, NASCAR, where he was more on a sales side and right. a very, very good one, by the way, a successful one. Um, but the the need to be very politic, um, working with you know school administration, presidents, um, athletic directors, and the academic side of things that that, that I might I might have started scratching my head. Today, I'm doing that a lot less about this um, and what's what's going to be needed um, to go in there and, you know, have the Big 12 survive this, which they look like they might be um, in pretty good position to do. Yeah, yeah, especially considering, as you said earlier, they're losing Texas and Oklahoma. You know, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what's harder, you know, who is it harder to work for, 12 university presidents or one Russian oligarch? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if history is any indication, things will move very quickly, right? This right. is not going to be prolonged. Just too much money at stake, too many, you know, just you, you can't afford to have too many loose ends in this situation for too long. Yeah, and I think that is a good point. And, and the reason that the Board of Trustees of the Pac-12 has said, start working on the on the television negotiation right now um, in, in the, you know, in that conference, 
you know, obviously they're a little weaker than they were a couple of weeks ago going into that uh, with the LA market not being a part of that mix. But I think they're just trying to get that wrapped up, show that they have something, and I guess potentially to poach a few others if that's the way they're thinking. But I, I mean, I agree with you that this st stuff is going to happen quick. Um, and, you know, we're going to be talking about this for the next few weeks as, as different, uh, different chess moves are, are made by, uh, by these commissioners. The, the other thing, you know, when Maryland and, and Rutgers joined the Big Ten, both of them did so, at least in part, because of financial difficulties their respective athletic departments were having, and they got a big infusion of cash. Um, now you've got Rutgers, right, who had to travel as far as Minnesota, is now going to have to travel to Los Angeles. Um, you know, same with Maryland. The, the travel costs are going to be remarkably, you know, significantly higher for these programs. The 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 cost of recruiting, right? The money that's going to have to be put into create to recruiting if you want to stay at least competitive, if not, you know, vie for conference championships and major bowl game appearances. Um, you know, I don't know how schools like Rutgers and Maryland are going to be able to do that. Well, think about it, not even from the football basketball side, but think about it from the Olympic sports. Um, it's going to be a huge, huge, huge difference. I mean, you know, these football programs are, are chartering or, or going in, in a little better ways, uh, you know, a little more luxurious travel than, you know, the, uh, the soccer teams or the swimming teams or the track and field teams. Um, and that's going to be an interesting cost increase to be going out, you know, going all the way out, out West. I think that, I think the number on the television side conference wise is going to be so much bigger and that's been factored into this, that it's not going to, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm just cynical enough um, to say that the, you know, the, the lack of profitability of these athletic departments is somewhat manufactured. Um, they could very easily um, be profitable or sit on the books be profitable um, by cutting some costs that aren't necessary to field competitive teams. But it's part of the recruiting aspect. Uh, it's part of what makes a school appealing to a young athlete um, uh, making a decision. And now with Neil added in, it's a whole new thing. So um, lo lots of crazy stuff going on in the college space. And, uh, um, you know, and, you know, no matter where you went to school, if you were a fan of that, um, of that, that school you went to, folks, um, something's going on with it right now. Yeah, I, I you know. The purest in me, which has been beaten out of me over the last 25 years in this industry, but the, the small part of me that remains that is a purist, it's disappointed, right? I grew up as a fan of, you know, Tailback University, USC, right? Uh, you know, Charles, you know, Charles White, Anthony Davis, uh, you know, Marcus Allen, up to, you know, Lindale White. And, well, let's, we don't need to talk about OJ. Sorry. To remind, remind me to tell you my OJ stories when, one day. I'm either on or off the air. But, uh, yeah. But, you know, now they, you know, who will they play? in If they make the Rose Bowl, right, who do they play? Do oh, they play? right. <laughs> yeah, these whole alliances are all, like, have to be refigured. I mean, it's going to be a, a new book. You and I are going to have to learn this stuff, both as fans and as people in the business. It's, yeah, I'm too old. I'm not one. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse to learn anything more. All right. Well, more to come on this for sure. Um, no doubt about it.
real quick, we have a few minutes before our guest is here to join us. A couple other things going on. USFL completed its first season, and they're saying they've survived to a second season. Uh, Birmingham Stallions defeated the Philadelphia Stars 33-30. It sounds like it was a good game. I did not watch it. Apparently, there there was audience uh, for this game, and people say the game itself was uh, pretty interesting. Haven't seen the numbers. Uh, but I think that, you know, listen, so USFL has pretty much already announced that they're back for a second season. We heard that before. Yeah. But it does seem they're out raising money to help fund that. Um, I think the whole future of, of USFL is going to be based on what the XFL comes out with and which if they're competing at the same time, which they're supposed to, uh, which is offering a better alternative, uh, as we've talked about before. Um, the XFL has a connection as a development league for the NFL. Will that help and how will that manifest? Uh, so I think that'll be a real key. Uh, Fox Sports, though, is big in on USFL as, as the major investor. So uh, that gives them, you know, uh, some, some strength as well. Again, uh, the cynic in me says the likelihood that either one survives um, is small. The likelihood that both of them survive to me is infinitesimal. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with that for sure. All right. Do we want to take a break? Let's do it. All right. We've got a good guest coming up. It's time for our guest. Joe Favorito is a leading strategic communications professional in the sports business. He has held media relations positions at an array of properties, including the WTA, the USTA, the 76ers, and the Knicks. Since 2008, he has been an independent consultant working with some impressive clients, including NFL Films, MLB, Intel, Tops, uh, and many more. I could go on and on, Tim, on this, but uh, you know, it would be better, to, I think, to hear from him. So, Joe, welcome to the Sports Biz Chat. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we're going to try to jump right in here. Uh, Obviously, a ton of stuff going on. Uh, So we wanted to start with this. Whether because of fragmentation of media, uh, the rise of social media, or just because there are so many choices we have in what we follow and what we're passionate about. As you look back on your career, what challenges do sports communications professionals deal with today that may not have existed when you were first breaking into the business? Mm. Well, first of all, I think that the, the aspect of storytelling hasn't changed in 2000 years. What's changed is the medium. And, and what used to be an audience that you wanted to reach of maybe two or three miles is now around the world and maybe off the planet. So, um, you know, the challenges now are, you know, there's just more channels, there's more noise. You have to be a better listener. You have to be a better consensus builder than ever before. Uh, and really, I mean, when, when you look at the organizations, whether they're teams, leagues, brands, political figures, the ones that I think do the best are the ones where they have someone in the strategic communications position at the table from the beginning of whatever is going on. They are the trusted advisor to the company. They may not be the full-time person in the company, but there's someone who can decide whether the whole forest is on fire or is it just a tree. And if you can decide that early on, boy, does that save you a heck of a lot of time, effort, and money. So you said that storytelling hasn't changed in 2000 years. What makes for good storytelling in in the sports industry? Well, um, you know, I used to, uh, one of my former bosses who's passed away was Jay Larkin and Jay always felt when we worked uh, in MMA together, 
he said, you know, the, the best stories are the ones where you have an Avis to somebody's hurts. And, you know, you have heroes and villains, but you also have to have something that's relevant to the audience you're trying to reach. So, you know, if you're, you know, trying to talk to the UFC with, you know, moms over 60, probably a hard thing to do, you know, so knowing what your audience is, and then honestly being able to listen. Um, I think the, you know, the art of listening when everybody's trying to shout over each other has really been lost. Um, and if you're a really good listener and, and people will tell you things a lot of times, and, you know, I go back to something that my grandfather told me that I use in my class that I'm sure you guys have heard before. You have two ears and one mouth. And if you listen twice more than you speak, boy, it's amazing what people will tell you. And when they do, sometimes they don't even know what they're saying sometimes, but you can kind of play a little bit of whack-a-mole and put those pieces together. Uh, and suddenly you're putting them in a trend that they had no idea that they were going to be involved with. And that's the beauty of, of I think, being curious and being able to listen no matter what age you are. It's, the stories are out there. You just got to kind of match them to the medium. Okay. So speaking of stories, there have been obviously huge stories in the in the space. Um, uh, we'll talk about in a little bit the conference realignment. We opened the show a bit with that, Joe. So just to let you mm -hmm. know. Um, but there's another big one that t that Tim and I have talked about on the show quite a bit that's dominating a lot of the sports biz chatter, and that's the Live Golf versus PGA Tour aspect. I don't know how much you want to share, but we would love to get your perspective on how both sides of this are handling the uh, the media relations, how mm -hmm. their messaging has been. You know, Greg Norman and the Live Golfers seem to be having messaging that they're trying to be consistent about, and the tour is, you know, trying to you know stake its ground out. Give them grades. Tell us what you think about uh, how this whole thing is going down. So sometimes it's hard when you're not in the room to know kind of what the strategy is. Um, and when you're when you have a disruptive force like Live Golf coming into a very traditional space like the PGA Tour, people will look at it and say, oh, outlandish. You know, they're ruining, uh, you know, the integrity of the game. These guys are just going for the money. Well, guess what? Everybody's just going for the money right now. And um when you, it goes back to what I said before, when you're working in a glo global environment, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to not cast stones, but you better realize that if you're doing that, if you're a, a, an audience or a brand or a team or a league that is taking dollars in some form from all over the world, whether that's China, whether that's India, whether that's Japan, whether in some places it's Russia, um, you know, it's really hard to sit there and say, oh, the integrity of the game and everything goes before us. Now, that being said, the PGA Tour is unbelievably successful, massive business, um, great personalities, extremely deep rosters, um, you know, and is taking on a massive challenge with very, very deep pockets, maybe for the first time. And when you have a disruptive force coming in, and that's what they are, they're like, look, we're going to try. And, you know, you talk about you know, some of the messaging that they've used about, you know, new age golf and what it is. So, you know, my, my colleague, Tom Richardson, we were talking the other day and he's watching and he's like, looks like golf to me. I mean, I don't really know what's kind of unique about it. It's golf. And that's great. And at the end of the day, I don't really know if you're a consumer, if you're sitting there and you want to watch Phil Mickelson, you're going to watch Phil Mickelson. And if, you know, the, the PGA Tour has been done a great job of building up its young stars and they've got a deep, deep roster of young stars. You know, do I think that this this area of inclusion, exclusion and, you know, we're going to do this and they're going to do that is going to work? The consumers and the ratings are going to tell you whether it's going to work or not. I would imagine everybody's going to 
kind of figure out how this plays together somewhere down the road. And like I said, having an Avis to your hertz makes you be a little bit more nimble and maybe addresses things that you didn't want to address. You should have addressed before. Now, do you like the language that Live Golf is using in some of their things? And, you know, a, a seasoned PR person whose name I don't want to mention got up there and kind of was criticizing the media. Maybe that's what he, they wanted him to do. Go up there and kind of poke the bear a little bit. Yeah. So, so, you know, at the end of the day, people want to see quality for their dollar and they want to see stars. And I think that there's, you know, an interesting pool of stars, marketable stars that are on both sides. And maybe this will, you know, kind of force a bigger opportunity and get people talking about golf when they weren't talking about it, which at the end of the day, if you're a brand, that's really important. Well, I think people are definitely talking about golf where and perhaps when they hadn't been talking about golf. I think what's what I've been, what's been going through my mind, and I have certain views of, of these guys that have done it, uh, have, have made the leap. You're certainly right about the money, of course. But I've been wondering if there, if all of the noise, um, and quite honestly, the amplification that Live Golf has gotten has almost be, be, been because that they're loving the fact that the PGA Tour has responded as it has. Oh, 100%. It's created so much discussion. And I've, I've told Tim, I've never had more questions about the sports business posed to mm -hmm. me about, than, than through this live golf situation. So it's interesting. I'll give you the, the other parallel that I remember was at the, the beginning of when the WNBA started. People may not remember that there was the AIBA, the women's, a, a, I think it was the AIBA or the AIAW, competitor league, disruptive league. At the beginning, David Stern and Val Ackerman decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about ourselves. We're not talking about anybody else. And they went out of their way to say, we are the league, we have the players, we have the money, we are driving the business. And they drove their competitors out of business pretty much by silence. Now, I don't think by any chance, you know, I think when you poke enough bears and you say, by the way, Phil Mickelson's not here, you know, you got to answer those questions. But um, I think it's, it will be interesting to see quality over quantity and how many people watch over time. And that's, that's what people want. They love heroes and villains. So now you got heroes and villains on both sides. And, you know, we're going to see kind of where it's going to play out. Is it bad for golf? No. Like you just mentioned, Dave, I mean, people are talking about golf and they weren't talking about golf before. So um, I think it will kind of play out. And by the way, you know, you've got another individual sport, women's tennis, sitting there and saying, you know what, maybe we'll take some of that Saudi money too. And there are sovereign wealth funds involved with, and Tim, I'm sure you've seen this, involved with several major league teams that are, are kind of doing a little bit silently or they're bringing in brands, um, which, you know, people have kind of looked the other way about right now. And, you know, that's the global, you got to kind of figure out, you know, how you're going to do this in the global economy and find the cash to make sure that you're delivering to an audience that is not just inside your, you know, your 75 mile geographic radius. Yeah. The true global nature of sports, right. On display mm -hmm. with some of these sovereign wealth funds. Let's change gears a little bit. Uh, when I when I took my first brand side job um, and I was getting up to speed, one of the things that really struck me was I, I was given a crisis management plan. We had a we had a uh, we had a sponsorship of the NASCAR team and driver, and we had a crisis management plan in place in the event that he was either badly injured or, or killed. And mm -hmm. it sort of was a kind of a shock to me, right? Um, I had never dealt with something like that before. And it, it's always struck me that that is one area of communications, public relations, where A, you by very by its very nature, it comes up at you 
out of nowhere, right? It's a crisis, right? By definition, it comes out of nowhere. Um, so how do you approach crisis management? Is it, is it sort of plan for the worst and hope for the best? Or, you know, how do you approach that? And if you can give us an example from your career in either name names or don't as you feel comfortable of, of, a, of a crisis management plan that you had to implement. I've always found it very fascinating. So, so a couple things. One is um, people may criticize Madison Square Garden for a lot of things, but one of the things that Jim Dolan and my boss, Barry Watkins at the time, was overly prepared for were the worst case scenarios. And sitting on top of Penn Station, you had to deal with a lot of things. But for the teams too, like no surprises. That was the biggest thing that Jim always looked for was no surprises. And that went up and down the organization. Now, you know, when you're dealing with a product that has a heartbeat and likes to say things from time to time, or you have, you know, ownership that that may kind of go their own direction at some point, it's hard to kind of fight everything, but no surprises is really important. Um, and I think, you know, the best organizations in, you know, we'll call it the proverbial, you know, cloud-based closet has all those things worked out to the best of knowledge that you possibly can. Now, you know, I've, for better, for worse, I've, in the last couple of months, I've dealt with, you know, issues with mass, like everybody else, issues with mass shootings. What do you say or not say about Brittany Griner? What do you deal about? You know, how can you deal with, you know, athletes who are worried about Black Lives Matter? You know, what's the level of importance? Um, you know, just this past weekend, I was talking to several organizations about, you know, should we say something about uh, Illinois or should we not say something about Illinois? Well, you know, there've been 11 mass shootings since the beginning of July. So you got to kind of pick your spots. Um, and then what do you do? What's the tonality of that? Are you listening? You know, I, I think the biggest thing that you tell people in a crisis situation is you have to over, literally over communicate internally. And so that people know who is speaking, what they're saying and when they're saying it. And, and um, those are the issues that come up because the natural thing is someone reaches out to a senior official or they put a microphone in front of their face or they call them or they text them. And the first thing to do is respond. Actually, the first thing you should do is pause and think about, should I be talking now? Should I be the one who's talking? And is the time right? You know, what, what, how does this all affect what we're going to be doing? And it all goes back to listening. You have to be able to listen really well. And that's why I think having trusted senior communications people at the table from day one mm -hmm. saves you a heck of a lot of problems because, you know, while you're emotional about something, they can be a little bit passive. And by the way, can get on a phone with someone and say, hey, you went through something similar, you know, what should we do? So um, in terms of things that I went through, I'll give you two. One is funny. The other one is very serious. So um, the funny one is I was at the WTA and we had a guy, and I don't know if you guys ever came across Rick Larson. Rick Larson was at the PGA Tour for a long time and he was going to become the CEO uh, of the WTA Tour after Ann Worcester left. I was before we hired Bart McGuire. And um, in those days, obviously we had media guides. So Rick Larson takes the job. We print the media guides and lo and behold, early January, he decides he's not going to do it. And we thought this was the biggest problem in the world. So coming from the NBA, I called Terry Lyons and Brian McIntyre at the NBA. And I said, I've got a big problem. Can you guys help me? So 20 minutes later, it was when we, you know, you didn't have this, you had cell phones or you, you didn't even have cell phones. You, you had, you know, conference calls. So we got on the phone with, you know, Jan Hubbard and, and Terry and Chris Brianza, they had everybody, the crisis team for the NBA assembled in the room. And we said, 
our CEO just quit and he's in our media guide and we got to figure out what to do. And our season starts in three weeks. And there was silence. And then they burst out laughing. <laughs> They're like, that's a crisis. <laughs> you take an exacto knife and you cut the page out of the media guide and you say who your new CEO is going to be before this guy started. He goes, you want a crisis? Worry about, you know, malice in the palace or, you know, some of the things that David makes us go through. Those are crisis. This is just something. So what, what did we do? <laughs> we put out a press release the next day saying that he wasn't going to take the job. We explained to people we're crystal clear with what our messaging was going to be. And we literally took an exacto knife and cut the page out of the media. Guide. <laughs> and somewhere in my office, I have media guides that, that are missing a page from the WTA tour. So, yeah, so that's great. the funny one. The serious one was, again, I go back to um, when I was, uh, we had our mixed martial arts league, the IFL for two and a half years and amazing young personalities, you know, in a sport that is obviously at that time was a challenger brand coming up. UFC was getting pretty established. Um, and, you know, we loved marketing our, our young athletes. And that's the way it was built. And when we folded the business, a bunch of them went on. And although most of them, I don't think anyone is still fighting now, but a bunch of them went on to be pretty household names in the UFC. Um, we had a guy who was fighting for us out of California, uh, Southern California, <clears throat> named Jeremy Williams. And I'll never forget this. It was a Friday night in July. And my wife and my two kids and I were going to a restaurant in, in um uh, Westwood, New Jersey called the Iron Horse. And I was walking down the street and my cell phone rang and I looked at it and it was kind of strange that I was getting a call from California. And I answered the phone. And he said, this guy said, you don't know me, um, but I'm calling you because your name is on a press release. And I want to tell you that one of your fighters, Jeremy Williams, just committed suicide. And he said, one of the reasons why I'm calling you is I want you to get ahead of this because we are monitoring chatter right now. And I'd like to tell you how to go through this and the messaging that you have to put forward because this young man was very beloved and you worry about things like copycats and had never dealt with a suicide before. Sadly, I've dealt with two since then. But one thing I learned automatically from my time um, at the garden and in other places at the WTA where we had lots of crazy things, you know, Jim Pierce and Stefano Capriati and Richard Williams and, you know, a lot of other things was you don't panic and you listen first uh, and then you immediately get to the people who you need to get to so that they're aware of what's going on because you don't want any surprises. And we did it uh, and we got through it. And there was messaging that you had to put into it that we would have never realized you had to put in about suicide prevention. Sadly, it's it's way too prevalent right now amongst young people. Um, but that was a tough one to learn. And um, because you were dealing with such raw emotions and such shock, kind of like I'm sure what most people are dealing with, with, you know, the mass issues that we've seen with violence now. Um, but learning that was probably one of the harder things to learn in how we did it. And, you know, the one thing that I took away from it was his family got back to us and said, we really want to thank you for the way you handled it because you gave him the dignity, but you didn't cause any more problems. And, you know, that was one that I'll never forget, Jeremy Williams, and, and then the two that have happened after that. Uh, who was the gentleman who called you? I don't remember his name. He was calling me from a suicide prevention hotline, actually. He oh, had gotten okay. my name off okay. of... Um, uh, he lived in Southern California and he had gotten my name off a press release. He'd gone on the web hmm. and knew that Jeremy was a fighter, knew of Jeremy. He was actually an EMT worker as well. Uh, and he called me and said, you know, I want to tell you that this is going on because it was a Friday. We weren't fighting that weekend. So no one would have known uh, until it kind of got around a little bit more. Now, this was at the beginning really of, of social. So there wasn't Twitter at that point, really. I mean, it had just started, but. Um, but, you know, he probably would have gotten around a little bit faster, but, you know, making sure that it's true, by the way, was the first thing. So we had to go through several steps trying to find a coach and making sure that it was true before we did anything. And 
because it was a very public thing. You know, you have to deal with public officials, whether they're police or firemen or lawyers, to make sure that nothing you're doing will, you know, hinder their um, their research or create a problem for anybody else who's involved. So it was it was complex, and that's just one of sadly, you know. <laughs> hundreds, including over the last 24 hours, like I had said with the mass shooting in Illinois, that, that stuff you have to deal with. But, you know, it's after being around this for over 35 years, you know, you never say never about what's going to be coming along next. But, uh, you know, those are the tough ones that you just hope you never deal with. Yeah. Hey, Joe, thanks. The both tremendous stories. Um, and we appreciate you sharing those. So I want to move on to something that I, I don't think we'd necessarily classify it as a, a crisis management situation, but the PAC-12 is going through some things right now. You got your start in the college sports information space, as did I, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd love to get your thoughts on if you were working uh, with the conference right now, or maybe even the ACC, uh, which, which I'm an ACC guy, and I'm a little worried about what might be coming down for them. And how might you advise them in terms of at least what they're, what you're saying right now? So the sad thing about the college sports information space is it really hasn't changed since I was there in the 1990s, um, although it could, and I hope that it does. And there's some schools that do great work um, and some young people who really deserve a chance. Um, you know, the hardest thing right now is, again, you can never have enough information. And, um, you know, whether or not the Pac-12 was, quote, blindsided by USC and UCLA on the Friday before um a holiday weekend who knows i mean but you know this is it's kind of a den of thieves and and you know everyone is kind of trying to figure out where they're going to posture in this dance going forward but i i think you know the biggest thing is figuring out a little bit more and that's why having senior people at the table is important because you need to know kind of what the long game is here people remember that usc and ucla left you know, you don't want to make anything worse. You know, you want to really be a good listener. And there are so many tools right now that are out there. The NFL probably does the best job on social listening of every audience because it goes back to the same thing. Is Are the trees, is the whole forest really on fire or is it just a couple of trees? And, you know, if we don't have an, an answer right now, the worst thing you could do is, you know, kind of make something up or, you know, feign surprise, you know, Figure out what your story is going to be for the long term, because this is a long term play and make sure that those internal conversations that are going on, that you've over communicated to the decision makers, whether it's a board, whether it's a university presidents, whether it's athletic directors to say, here are our messages. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we can't say right now. Here's what we can say right now and hold the fort right now, because you know, I mean, I saw the numerous rumors today, you know. Arizona, Arizona State are going to the Big 12. Well, no, they're not. Maybe they're going to the ACC. Well, maybe three three other schools from the American are now going to go to the Pac-12. Maybe the NCAA is going to go out of business. Nobody knows at this point. So I think that internal communications is extremely, extremely important. And figuring out what those messaging messages are with a, a business, college athletics, that is really, really passionate and emotional and sometimes maybe not the best business structures up and down all the time uh, at a time when we don't know where the NCAA is going to go. If you're a league, you're trying to address things from a position of strength, uh, but also kind of taking a breath and figuring out what our next move is going to be, because that's what people are looking for. They're looking for the drama in the chess game and you want to make sure you don't show your pieces too early. Great advice. Before we come to our closing questions, one other question for you and we'll, 
give you the ability to define this however you choose. But what's what's the the best program you've ever been involved in? Most fun, most successful, garnered the most media coverage, whatever, however you want to define it. And I know that over a career as storied as yours, that's probably really difficult to do. But we like to ask the tough questions here at Weight Watchers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you probably go the other way and say, what are the worst ones? No, that's <laughs> not true. I mean, there have been so, so, you know, like you guys, when we get a little bit older, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, you don't root for teams as much anymore. You root for people and places that you've been. And, um, you know, I was just talking to um, Matt Hutchings at, at uh, Kroenke before about the amazing run that they've just had with three championships in the calendar year, the first six months of a year. Um, and, you know, when I look back on it, those are the, you know, I, I take such great pride in the people I've seen on television who literally have a, you know, are there witnessing history live, whether it's, you know, a buddy like Jack Armstrong, who's the, the voice of the Toronto Raptors, who, you know, we grew up together in Brooklyn and he went to Fordham with me. And, you know, we've had parallel careers, although he's on the broadcast side or Raymond Ritter, you know, who's in the, the, probably the best team PR person anywhere on the planet, you know, and has gone through the ups and downs of the Warriors. And I loved watching him run around with his white sneakers after the Warriors won on the sidelines. Um, you know, I was lucky to be around a lot of, you know, again, the teams I worked for and the organizations I worked for, not at the best times, but still amazing brands. Um, you know, we had a program um, with the Knicks with Kurt Thomas, who was, you know, an amazing, not just an amazing player, but an amazing person where he realized that he was kind of um, taken advantage of by an agent on the financial side and didn't know anything about financial literacy, which is now obviously, you know, very interested, uh, interesting to players. But, you know, we built something with, Chase, with uh, Merrill Lynch called the Stock Market Game, where Kurt mentored young people uh, in the inner city of New York, and they eventually got scholarships. And it had very little to do with basketball, it had all, a lot to do with financial literacy. Um, I think one of the best things that I was involved with was the beginning of Arthur Ashe Kids Day uh, with the USTA, where, you know, Pierce O'Neill and then right after that, Arlen Kantarian said, you know, we want to make this into something bigger than tennis. And, you know, Rob Correa and Sean McManus went along with it. And lo and behold, I was telling somebody the other day where, you know, I remember my niece was there to watch, you know, this band called, you know, 98 Degrees before they became anything. And, um, you know, was built over time where it became kind of a model for other sports and other leagues to say, okay, we want to take a brand. We want to take our corporate partners. We want to take our athletes and we want to take music and put it together with a great media partner like CBS and figure out where we can take this. And it grew, you know, over 25 years now, but being there kind of like at the beginning as these things are formed is, is probably the best part of anything. Um, you know, and I've, I've been, like I said, by listening, I mean, all the wacky stuff I, you know, I've been around when I was at Ford and we had a picture through underhanded when I was at Monmouth, which was Monmouth College at the time, we literally had a young woman named Dolly Connor who was a basketball player who was blind. And, you know, how you make those things into bigger picture stories are always the fun part because those are the stories I think resonate with people. Uh, and that's been the best part of this business. You know, and the other one I'll say is Lombardi. I mean, you know, that Fran, uh, Fran Kermser and Tony Panturo through kind of a little bit of luck, you know, pulled me in to the beginning of Lombardi and we watched how that became, you know, a Tony nominated play, you know, ran for eight months on Broadway, but the careers that came out of that, you know, relaunching Judith Light's career and where Dan Loria went from there and our director, Tommy Kale went on to direct Hamilton and, um, you know, some of the other people who were in it, you know, have gone on to amazing, amazing careers. Being there at the beginning of that 
and where that's gone after that, you know, it's been pretty good. But every day, I, you know, I marvel at the people that I meet and, you know, the opportunities that I get. That's the beauty of this business is, you know, you get to spend it around amazing people. And, you know, when you get a little bit older, you kind of be able to, to help them kind of get, the, you know, get along the way. Joe, as a Fordham guy, I mean, coming into that project had to be amazing, that Lombardi project, right? Yeah, well, especially, you know, yeah. especially that Fordham basketball has been so bad for over a quarter <laughs> of a century, but we don't have to go there. Um, but it was interesting. And I'll tell you really quickly, the way it came about was uh, Tony had left Anheuser-Busch and came back to New York and needed someone to really basically just help him write a press release about his, new, you know, hanging out his own shingle. And he did, and it went very well. I had met him through... Um, someone else. I actually, I think it was through Ben Sterner. Ben and Ben had introduced us. Believe second, it, ben, right? another Ben Sterner drop. No, I mean, yeah. he's, he's a he's a he's a regular drop on the wait yeah, for, for for better for worse, I guess. But that's okay. <laughs> um, but um, that's funny. Ben actually texted me about something totally different this morning. But but so Ben introduced us, and I helped Tony write the press release. And he said, you know, there's this this thing I'm going to do in a couple months, and I'll call you if it works out. And he called me and he asked me to come to his office at Rockefeller Center, and I sat down. Uh, and he was with his his producing partner, Fran Kermzer, and they took out a book from the shelf behind him, and it was When Pride Still Mattered that David Marinus wrote. And he said, we're going to do a play, a drama based on Vince Lombardi. He said, and, you know, maybe there's a way you can help us. He said, what do you think? And I said, well, I went to Fordham. I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm Italian. I wrote the history of Fordham football when I was there pretty much. Um, so I could probably figure out a way to make this work and, <laughs> you know, but the goal was really to take David's book, um, an amazing screenplay, the talent that we had on every level, um, and make it into something that was bigger. And the goal was, you know, that Broadway is, is largely, um, the demo is largely female and a little bit older. And how do you bring men to a Broadway play who want to go and then they'll take along their wives and make it an incredible night out. Um, and that's what we did. And it was, you know, really stars aligned and it led to two other plays after that. And I went on to work with Dan for, you know, three or four of the projects that he's had. But again, the people you meet along the way, not knowing where this is going to go is how Lombardi kind of came around. And it was, it was a heck of an eight month run and, uh, cool. nobody thought it was going to last more than three weeks at the beginning. And, you know, we were still going at the end and, you know, to th this day, you know, I'll get an email or a text from somebody who was in it, a guy named Rob Riley played Dave Robinson. And he's on um, uh, a show now, I can't remember the name of it, uh, based in Atlanta. Um, and he texted me last week. He's like, oh, look at what I'm doing now. So, um, you know, the people in the that came out of that were amazing and continue to resonate to this day. Yeah. So fun before fact, David gets this, wait, what's that? I'll play David. I was just going to say, fun fact, my grandmother on my mother's side, Mary Lombardi, born in Brooklyn. I am convinced there might be a connect. Well, I can't say I'm convinced there might be a connection, but I've never actually found it. Joe, I'm giving you free license to come up with that connection. The Mary, um, you know where she, yeah. you should tell me where she grew I, up. I, I will find, I will find that information. If, if it's St. Mark's Parish in Sheepshead Bay, there's pretty much a connection. Or, uh, you know, if she ended, ever ended up in, in Englewood, New Jersey, in and around St. Cecilia's High School, that's the other yeah. place. So, David, I'll buy you, uh, I'll buy you a, a subscription to 23andMe for your next birthday. There you go. So no, before I, we let, I've done be, that. Before we, uh, Joe, before David asks you the last two questions, I, he hates when I do this, and I love to do it, so I want to do it while you're still on with us, which is hit him with a trivia question. Oh, you God. mentioned earlier that Cronky Sports – is celebrating three championships in the first six months of the year. The first two are easy, yeah. right? The Rams in the Super Bowl, 
the Avalanche in the uh, in the Stanley Cups. David, do you know what so the third team is? It's his lacrosse team. Okay. All right. Good. You get him no, partial credit. And it, it's funny. Don't, um, don't the, make me. Don't make. Don't, don't make you name the, the team. Don't make the me mammoth. go to the next level. I got. I got level one. It's it's but, the mammoth. Yeah, but they um, and it's funny. Part of the dealings were since it was right before the Avalanche, you know, really made the, the final push in the Stanley Cup Finals, was working with Matt Hutchings and the people at Kroenke and the people at the NLL, the National Cross League to figure out how we fit the mammoth into that narrative. And lo and behold, after they weren't sure if it was going to happen, they got them into the flo- into the parade. And there were six mammoth players holding the NLL trophy at the back of the parade and probably the greatest experience that those young men have ever had. Um, and the, the franchises really supported each other, which was really nice. Hey, Tim, have we ever had a guest that more credibly and effectively drops names than Joe Favorito? No, and I was thinking, Joe, we would love to have you back on at some point and simply just turn on your microphone and, and listen to you tell stories. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. The, my other claim to fame is other than a cop, a fireman, or a sanitation worker, I'm probably the only person you'll ever meet who's had a job in all five boroughs of New York City. Yeah. Staten Island is a hard one. Wow. So, wow. So, wow, that is impressive. Anyway. Okay, so we come to this part of the discussion where we like to ask all our guests two questions. Mm-hmm. And the first one is, and we've touched on it a little bit, but the first one is. Well, Jack, get started. Where to start it. So it's a little bit two-pronged. One, when I was at Fordham, I was a basketball manager. Uh, and uh, Kevin Monaghan, who was at NBC at the time, said, hey, you know, maybe you could come an intern here because there was a long line of NBC interns who'd gone through the process. And the one who had it at the time was Michael Kay. Um, but because of basketball, it didn't really work out. But Kevin said to me, hey, uh, you know, there's this guy who used to run PR at NBC named Mike Cohen. He started his own business. Uh, and maybe you could intern for him after the basketball season was over. And that's kind of what it ha- had happened. And m- most people don't remember Mike, but Mike was, you know, he passed away in his 40s, died of a heart attack. Um, but Mike was really kind of one of the original sports communications people, and, and his tree is vast, um, still going on to this day. So he gave me that chance. The other, the, the funny story is um, one of the things we used to do at Fordham was literally how we made money. Um, the local police precinct used to come by and round, people, round men up, young guys, to stand in lineups. True story. They would pay us 35 bucks a lineup. And um, we would go, and actually one of my college roommates found some of the pictures, which were hilarious. They'd call us. It was part of the North Bronx task force, and you'd go to a precinct, and you'd stand in a lineup, and then they'd take you back in a police car. Uh, they'd pay us 35 bucks a lineup, but my 21st birthday party, there was a guy there, and I'm looking at him like, where do I know you from? And he said, you don't remember me? I'm a bookie. You stood in my lineup. And my <laughs> idiot friends at the time had made, made true story, had, had made friends with him. But after talking to him for a little while, I realized that, look, he makes money in sports, although it's a little bit nefarious. My father was a lawyer, so I couldn't really do a lot of things that were illegal at that point. But he kind of figured out how to create a niche at a time where sports, business, and marketing were just kind of starting in the late 80s. Um, But those are really kind of the two. Mike gave me the chance to, to kind of prove what I could do. And I'd always been involved. I mean, when I was 18 in high school, uh, we won the New York State High School Basketball Championship, and they needed someone to get the scores out. So I knew how to – I figured that out. And I didn't know what it was a business. Um, 
but those were the two, Mike Cohen and the bookie from the Bronx were the two <laughs> that kind of led me where I was going to go. And not much has changed, by the way, in my entire career. So. And then the last question is, uh, one piece of advice you'd like to give to someone looking to break into the sports business and maybe with a particular focus in the sports communication space? Um, be curious is the most important thing. So I think curiosity and empathy are the two most important skills that you have to have these days. And the third one, like I said at the beginning, is listening. You know, we're in a world, as I said before, that people are just shouting over each other. You have to be a good listener. Uh, and the stories will come to you. They're sitting out there all the time. And sometimes, you know, as you guys have gone through this as well, you know, you try to go down a path and that path is not open. Sometimes if you look a little bit left, there's a path right there that wants you to go down. So go down the damn path and see where it goes. And I don't care whether you're, you know, 18 or 45 and, you know, people will always give you impediments to success, you know especially on the sales side, if you want to take on something, you know, you got to find, you know, take the objections on head first and figure out how you can kind of make lemonade. So, but I think listening is really important, being able to kind of put people together, uh, not take yourself seriously and always be curious. I mean, I, I get up every day trying to learn something and, and, you know, it's amazing how there's so much out there now. I've got a list of like 35 new platforms that, that young people have mentioned to me that, that I have no idea what they are, but you know, I just want to learn about them. So it sounds a little bit interesting. That's great, great advice. Joe, really thank you for joining the show. You brought some great storytelling to us, not just talked about storytelling, but, but provided us with great storytelling and, and we appreciate that. So thanks. Cool. Thanks guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Joe Favorito. Uh, you know, David, I've said this before. I just pinch myself with some of the guests we get on this podcast. And then Joe is just another in a long line of fantastic guests. You know, his ability to weave a story and, uh, you know, his experiences is just phenomenal. Um, so thank you again to Joe. Uh, this is the part of the show where we look forward to the next week until we get to pontificate again. What's uh, what are you looking forward to, David? Well, first, I, I concur. That was such a fun discussion to hear some of these some of these stories. And now that he's you know on and committed to finding out if I'm related to Vince Lombardi, I, I, I just feel <laughs> it's a double double plus. I'm going to stick with what we started this show with. I, I think there are going to be a lot of things continuing to make news um, this week, this coming week, uh, in the college sports space, and I'm going to be glued to finding out what those are. I did think that Joe made a really good comment about, you know, you have to really think this messaging through. Uh, and if all of these commissioners are indeed in it for the long haul, um, being smart about what they say and what they don't say uh, mm -hmm. at this point, at the same time, I just think there's, I, I think the news is so focused on this, we're going to hear some things. And I'm excited to finally settle in. I haven't had too much of a chance to watch much Wimbledon, um, but uh, it feels like there's a possibility for a big final here uh, on the on the men's side. And uh, we'll have to see how this all shakes out. Um, but uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to uh, spend some time and, and watch some tennis nice. from London. What about you? In a rare show of bipartisanship, the Senate Judiciary Committee is holding hearings about Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. Not to go too deep into the weeds, but over 100 years ago, uh, the Justice Department um, granted Major League Baseball an exemption to antitrust laws in this country. 
uh, primarily based on what is now a very quaint notion that baseball is a game and not a business. The hearings are to talk specifically about the working conditions and you know pay that minor league baseball players get. Um, but if they do it right or wrong, depending on your perspective, they could talk about things like free agency and things like that, right? Because baseball, unlike so many other sports, maintains control of its players um, much longer than any of the other major leagues here in the country. So I'll be watching that. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, uh, pretty fascinating. It's it's almost hard to believe how much intersection we're having right now with the with the sports world uh, and the political world uh, and governmental issues. But uh, you know, there are implications here on on all of these things. So um, uh, as we as we look at our times, I guess if you look at it from that lens, it's not particularly surprising. Yep, sports, business, entertainment, and politics, right? Not right. all too dissimilar from one another. So with that, uh, I want to thank you, the listener. Thank my co-host, David. Uh, if you like what you hear, um, comment, like us, share us. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week on Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee.